This morning we are going to be finishing up chapter 2 in 2 Timothy. We're going to pick it up in, <clears throat> we're going to pick it up in verse 20, and we're going to work our way through verse 26. Now, Paul starts off this passage with, with the metaphor, and if you've recently read Romans 9, just put that out of your mind, okay? Because it's got very little, if anything, to do with this passage other than some of the words are the same. So just put Romans 9 out of your mind. We're going to walk through this passage. It, too, talks about vessels, but not in the same way that Paul does in Romans 9. So if for whatever reason you woke up this morning, you turned to Romans 9, and that's where you had your quiet time, let it stay quiet. Don't let it impact what we're going to do today, okay? All right. I don't think anybody did that this morning. Uh, So Paul opens up this passage, and he is talking about vessels. And so I thought it would be uh, helpful, instructive, or maybe just slightly humorous for me to bring some some vessels. Um, I was really worried I'd break something, and that's why I brought the overly cautious padded box. Okay? I'm sure these come in some type of, like, preacher supply deal and um, for visual aids. That's not where I ordered it. We move a lot. And so that's, that's why I've got this. Um, and so I started thinking about uh, vessels that, that we have in our house. And that's really what Paul's talking about, just things you find in the average Roman household. I mean, that's not, there we go. It's secure now. Yeah, it is. It could have slid before, but now it's safe-ish. And so he's, he's walking through, and he says, look, when you're walking through this household, you see these different things. And he says, some of these are for honorable use, and some of these are for, <clears throat> for dishonorable use. And so I started thinking through the different vessels we have in our house. And so if we have you over for dinner, depending on you know, where we're at in our friendship or um, how you feel about me, you might make it to different levels of these vessels, okay? Okay. Well, uh, the first vessel is, is this guy. Now, if you're really thirsty, he's not going to help. But this is what I use this thing for. Um, this is my Oreo and milk glass. It is, and I'm going to get there in a second. It's short. I got short fingers, and so occasionally I drop Oreos in my milk. But look, I can reach all the way to the bottom. And so this is great. I don't want a whole lot of milk when I'm eating Oreos. I just want enough to get it soggy. And, and then I'm going to eat it. And so this is my Oreo and milk glass. And occasionally, if you come over, my wife hasn't made dessert, we might sit around, we might hang out on the couch and have Oreos and milk. Um, but if you eat more than four, um, we're going to have to talk. Because um, I, I only get four at a time, and when you eat the fifth one, then I've got to eat the fifth one. You eat, and then, you know, next thing you know, we're going to the store to buy another box of Oreos. Okay, so the second glass that, that, or vessel that, that, that I find myself, and this is really my favorite for a number of reasons, I love souvenir cups. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for souvenir cups. And probably that's because when I grew up in Europe, no restaurant anywhere had souvenir cups. Um, they would sell T-shirts at the, the Hard Rock Cafe in London. But outside of that, this is an American thing, right? It, it's been exported other places in the world now. God bless America. But, but by and large, this is, this is an American thing. Now, this is one of my favorites. Railhead Barbecue in Fort Worth, fantastic. This is uh, a commercial for them as well. And so if you're in Fort Worth and you need some good barbecue, Railhead. But the reason I like this cup so much, one, I can put a lot of liquid in here. And so sometimes I like iced tea. You know, I want the ice in there and I fill it up. Or maybe I want a big Dr. Pepper. I'm really thirsty. Dr. Pepper hits the spot. Occasionally, I've been known to put water in this. Occasionally. And so, but my favorite thing about this cup is on the back, it says, life is too short to live in Dallas. And so I think that's, <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
And so, but if you come over, probably we're going to, to, to make you a, a, a glass of milk or, or tea or something or water or whatever you want in, in this glass. It's a good heavy glass, and so you feel like you're getting a workout while you're hydrating. It's just, it, and it's, it, it's ample, right? You can fit a lot of stuff in there. But this next glass, if you're a royalty, you're going to get to drink out of this glass. And I, I assume royalty gets to drink out of this glass because I've never used it, um, in the 10 years we've been married, and, and we've never had royalty to the house. But listen, that's nice. Now, I'm not going to use this, uh, one, because we're never going to have royalty to the house. There's some serious security concerns. Um, but two, you've got to hand wash these things. I'm going to put that back in there. I never understood, you know, why you'd want to frequently use glasses that had to be hand-washed every time you use them. That just doesn't seem fair. Um, I mean, hey, that dishwasher's gentle, and if I can't use it on the glass, what, what's that to say about the way I have to drink out of it? So, All right, let me read this passage for us, and, and all this will begin to make sense, and it'll be coalescing in your brains, okay? Uh, starting in verse 20, let's read through verse 26. Paul writes, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He continues, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. So as we come into this passage, what becomes readily apparent is that we need to backtrack a little bit. We've got to find out what Paul said in verse 19 so that this begins to make sense to us. Now you remember in 19, it comes to the end of the section and Paul has talked about Hymenaeus and Philetus and these guys are telling everybody that the resurrection has already taken place and they're, they're spewing heresy and false teaching And then Paul comes into this great statement in verse 19. He says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And it's got two things written on it. It says, let everyone who names, he says, the Lord knows those who are his. And so God looks down from heaven. He sees Andy's heart. He sees Erlon's heart. He sees Larry's heart. And he knows those who are his. We might be confused. We might have people that come into church and you think they're a Christian, but God sees through all of that. He sees through their heart. He knows those who are his. He also knows those who are just pretenders, those who just use the name Christian because they like hanging out in church on Sunday morning. He says he knows those who are his, and then he says, look, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if you say you're a Christian, you should depart from iniquity. If you say you're a Christian, there are certain things you shouldn't do in your life. And then he goes into this metaphor. He says, in a great house. And so Paul is painting the picture for us of a church. Now, he uses this this house metaphor because we recognize that the church should be made up of brothers and sisters in the faith, right? 
And so Harry and I are, are, are brothers in Christ, and that just, that's where it stops. Jason and I are brothers in Christ, and that's where it stops. Robert and I are brothers in Christ, and, and, and that's where it stops. I don't look like, like these guys. We don't have the same parents, but, but we are of the same house together. He says, in a great house, and then he talks about these vessels. He says, on the one hand, you've got gold and silver, and on the other hand, you've got wood and clay. Then he comes up with a statement. He says, some of these things are for honorable use, and some of these things are for dishonorable use. See, we recognize in this group that Paul wrote to, there are readily apparent two groups of people, but really there are three groups of people. You see, on on the big picture, we've got Christians and non-Christians, okay? Okay? But with inside that, we've got Christians who are doing the things they are supposed to do. They're not following the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're not buying into these wars over words. They are staying true to the gospel. They are not getting sidetracked, but they are, in fact, representing God and the gospel well in their lives. And then you've got this other large group of people. Now, some of these people are Christians, but they're engaged in decidedly unchristianly behavior. Now, if you've been in a church for any length of time, surely you've come across some of these same people. These people that, that, that they might have been baptized when they were three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then repeatedly been baptized, made multiple professions of faith. They are, they are Christians several times over. But man, they don't act like it. There is nothing in the way that they talk, live their lives, spend their money, spend their time that gives any indication that they are, in fact, a Christian. They're a Christian in name only. But then you find others that are actual Christians. I mean, some teaching came along, some idea, someone gave them an opinion, and they bought into it, and they latched onto it. At some point, they swerved away from the truth. They actually are Christians. They're just being led by the wrong master at this point. And so that's what Paul's writing to. He says, look, in, in, in the church, we, we find people that are living in accordance with the way they're supposed to live. And we find others that are just, they're trying to lead the sheep astray. They are actually dishonorable. But look what he says about this third group. He says, look, there are some of you who are honorable, some of you who are Christians. And for you, if you're a Christian, that if you have gone astray, if you've started living your life on your own accord, if you haven't been submitting yourself under the authority of Jesus, verse 21 says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use. I mean, we recognize that as we go through life, there are things that lead us off track. You've made an idol out of work. You've made an idol out of family. You start pursuing that thing instead of pursuing God. And and, and instead of representing the gospel, instead of actually living in such a way of being a vessel for honorable use, you're pursuing something that is completely beneath God. You've made an idol of family. If family is more important to you than the gospel, if family is more important to you than Jesus, then you've made it an idol. I mean, that's an easy, easy thing to do. But it'll lead you completely off track. He says that, that you can cleanse yourself from that. You see, in this, this, this graciousness of God moving and revealing those things that are keeping us 
from glorifying him in our bodies. He's speaking to us through the Holy Spirit and and applying the truth of God's word to our lives and and telling us, you need to quit doing these things. You need to quit letting these things be Lord over you. You need to quit letting these things rule how you spend your money, how you spend your time. You need to surrender yourself to me anew. You need to be cleansed. And that cleansing happens through the recognition that you've been living sinfully, that you've been living for yourself and not for God. This is the great news. It says if you do that, then you can become a vessel for honorable use. Now look at what happens when you become that. He says when you become this vessel for honorable use, then you are set apart as holy. You are set apart for the use of the master of the house. And that master is Jesus. We recognize that when we uncover those things in our life that have been keeping us back from being effective for the gospel, be it giving our time to work or kids' sports or whatever it is, when we give ourselves back to God, holy, we're cleansed. We become useful again. See, some of us have been gone so long, you've forgotten what it is to be useful. You've forgotten that, that part of what it is to be a Christian is to, is to be useful. You see, God didn't just move in salvation to call you out of the darkness and into light so that you could sit there and get a tan on the beach. That's not what it is. God called you out of darkness into light. He he transformed you and took you from one place to the other so that you could be useful. Not so that you could occupy space on a Sunday morning. I appreciate that though. Some Sundays it gets awfully cold in here and your body heat keeps this place warm. But what we need you to do, what the gospel calls you to do is to be invested to be invested in its propagation, to be invested in moving it forward. And you can't do that if you refuse to be used. He says you become useful again. And for what? For every good work. Now you're not the one determining what those good works are. That's, that's bad news. Man, if you are self-employed or you're at the top of an organization, you are accustomed to doing those things that you like to do. Until somebody who has a position one higher than you steps in. And see, we recognize that as Christians, there is always someone one spot higher than us. I don't care if you own your own company, you sit at the head of a board, you are going to be responsible to someone. Now, what happens if you don't pay your taxes? You're not going to be sitting at the top of that for very long, are you? What happens if, if, if you don't have the right papers on file? Well, you can have this thing taken away from you. But you see, as a Christian, our spiritual lives never mirror our professional lives in that regard. There is no making it to the top of an organization. I don't care if you're a pastor or the pope. It doesn't matter. Every person that names the name of Christ is under submission to him. Every person that names the name of Christ has found themselves under his authority. And he's going to use us for every good work. But you've got to, you've got to let yourself be used. You've got to free up time in your schedule. Some of us are so, so overly scheduled and so busy that, that there's no time. We say, God, I want you to use me. You've got this 15-minute block every other Thursday, and that's when I'm going to give you time to use me. And then every other Thursday for those 15 minutes, we find ourselves in an elevator. And you look around, you're like, man, God, you're running out of time, bud. I gave you this 15 minutes. You're not making very good use of it. 
You see, if that's the way that you come to God using you and using your time, you can't compartmentalize God. You can't compartmentalize God. There's a friend of my parents that I always respected and looked up to, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the room with him, and he is hours away from, from passing away. And this guy had been a business executive for Exxon for a number of years. He had lived all over the world. And every day, this guy would schedule a meeting on his calendar, and he would spend an hour, man, just reading the word, praying for coworkers, doing whatever it was that God had called him to that day. And so I'm talking to him on his deathbed, and he said, Matt, you know, I lived my whole life recognizing that God had called me to be a missionary with Exxon. I lived my whole life the recognition that when, when God took us to Jordan, when God took us to Cairo, when God took us to Abu Dhabi, when God took us to Kuala Lumpur, when God took us to Katy, Texas, he put me in this place to impact people for the gospel. See, when you live your life in such a way that you're looking to be used, friends, God will use you. But it's going to be in a way that will completely surprise you, whether you're a lawyer, an engineer, or a plumber. Whether you're unemployed or whether you're a worker in the home. Whether you're a student. If you set yourself up in such a way and say, God, use me, you will radically transform everything. Are you setting yourself up to be useful? Now, turning back to Timothy, Paul says this in verse 22. He says that, Timothy, you need to flee youthful passions. Now, he is not talking about lust. He's not talking about desires of the flesh. What he's talking about is being young and being headstrong. You see, Timothy had a number of people that were moving against him. He had a number of people that weren't being very charitable to him. Maybe they had been gifted the gift of honesty or the the gift of criticism you probably run into some of these people. They come into you and say, friend, friend. I'll use Larry since he's right here. Larry, Larry, God has spoken to me, and he has given me the gift of honesty. Larry is translating that to mean criticism. And, and, and Larry, what God really wants you to do is, is to spend more time at the church. Or what God really wants you to do is to give money to this organization. Or what God really wants you to do is, is X, Y, and Z. You see, this person has set themselves up as an intermediary for God directly for Larry's benefit. And Larry, thank you so much for being a willing participant this morning. We all appreciate it. You see, and Timothy was getting this over and over again. And the temptation when somebody comes in and does these things is just to let them know exactly where they fit in the pecking order of life. It's just just to stop them in their tracks and just blast them, especially if you know more than they do, and especially even more if you know them to be wrong. And it's really easy to do. But Paul tells Timothy, and and you're going to see this. In effect, he's driving to the point that the, the spread of Christendom, the gospel, the health of the church, is so much more important than any person's preference, than any one person's success than any one person's situation, especially the pastor. So he tells them, flee youthful passions. And he tells them that you need to be pursuing these things. Now this is where all of us get picked up again. 
He says, you pursue righteousness. You pursue faith. You pursue love. You pursue peace. He, he, he comes back and he says, Timothy, you need to pursue these things. But look at the interesting way Paul tells him. Paul doesn't just go and say, Timothy, stop pursuing this strong-headedness. Stop pursuing these things and, and, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace instead. But he tells him that you're to do this in community with other Christians. Look at the second half there. He says, do this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In a great house, there are many vessels. In a church, there are many people who name the name of the Lord. In a church, we are a community of believers together. But we're not meant to be this loose-knit community. We're meant to be a a, a tight-knit community. We're meant to pursue honorable things together. And this is one of the things we're trying to model in our life groups where we get people together week after week and we talk about the sermon and and, and how it applies to our life. We talk about the text and we walk through and we pray with people and we walk through difficult issues in their life and we walk through joys and celebrations in their life because we want to be pursuing these things in community together. You see, the, the, the form and fashion of American Christianity sees us as being a group of lone rangers. We are all pursuing Christ. We're doing it in a room together, but we're all doing it as individuals. And you see, that is a distortion of the gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel. Even Timothy, as the lead elder and pastor there in Ephesus, was told to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, but to do so along with the other people who are doing the same thing. Do this along with those who call on the Lord. Not just those who name the name Jesus, not just those who said, yeah, I made that decision a long time ago, but upon those who are frequently, day in and day out, calling on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. You see the way that he paints it. He's not pointing at some historical decision that this group of people made, but he's pointing at a life uh, setting, he's, he's pointing at the way they have postured their lives to the gospel. They call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. A better way to translate this would be they are always calling on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. They're always crying out, Lord, purify me. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, make me to be righteous. Make me to crave righteousness. Make me to crave faith. Help faith to pour out from me. God, help me to crave love. Help my my feelings for my other brothers and sisters in Christ to resound in this community that is incorporated and spilled over with love. God, help me to pursue peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help me not to be willing to, to, to allow there to be division. God, help me to not be willing to, to let schisms and disagreements keep us from having fellowship together. But God, whether I hold something in my heart that that is, that is a pain, that is a hurt that Patty has caused me or Carol B has caused me or Sarah has caused me. God, help me to go to them and work that out. We can't have love and peace if we aren't working these things out with one another. You just can't have it. Man, it's difficult and it's painful because when I walk up to John and say, John, what's the deal? Why aren't you, why aren't we breaking bread together anymore? Why aren't we spending time together anymore? And he says, well, five or six months ago you stepped on my toe in the hallway. Man, I hate it when people do that. I said, well, John, that was five or six months ago. He said, yeah, and you never apologized. I said, John, I didn't know. 
Charles, I, I, I didn't know that I offended you when I, when I ridiculed your shirt. Charles, I didn't know that I ridiculed you in this way. We have to be open. We have to be willing to be reconciled with one another. And that's difficult. But that's how families operate. How crazy would it be if, if, if my wife and I had some disagreement we never shared it with each other? Day in and day out, we're, we're living under the same roof and She's not willing to share with me this deep hurt that I've caused her. You see how that would fracture our relationship? You see how that would, would cause this divide in us? I mean, this is one of the reasons we see church split after church split, because people refuse to walk through these issues together. In the name of preference and ease, they say, man, I'm just going to go somewhere else. I'm just going to find a church that doesn't squabble, that doesn't bicker over these things. And then they go to that church and they find them squabbling and bickering over different things. We have to be willing to walk through these things together. We have to do them in community. We have to do them in an open and a transparent way. And that's always the goal. Paul writes and he says that you need to do these things from a pure heart. But looking at verse 23, he, he moves to the negative. He says, look, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Now, the, the funny thing about this is that we get our word moron from, from, from uh, foolish in some ways, you could say, have nothing to do with moronic controversies. Have nothing to do with the type of people that breed these things. Don't get caught up in pursuing these things. And why not? Because Timothy should know better. He knows that these things breed quarrels. Now, he's not saying don't, don't have healthy discussion. Don't get together and, and parse out ideas and different theological interpretations. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there are things which cause divisions and there are things which drive us to a healthy, more robust understanding of God's word. Man, I have friends in seminary and in the pastorate and friends here at this church that we have division. We have differences of opinion on certain interpretations of how things come down. And we talk about these things frequently because it drives each of us to be a better student of God's word. I learn in a better way how to articulate all the nuances of their position and all the nuances of my position. And that is a good, that is a healthy thing. But there are schisms, there are, there are schismatics who seem to drive and are only interested in controversy into those things which are nothing but controversial, which do nothing more than drive to division. Paul says stay away from them. Stay away from these people that are un, unwilling to disagree. That all they want to do is argue. Because you recognize that in so doing, they are breeding quarrels. They are breeding fights and wars within the body. And look at what that, what that works against. In verse 24, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He says, look, on the level to Timothy, Timothy, you can't engage in this quarrelsome behavior because the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave, can't be quarrelsome. You can't engage in it because you can't have that be a characteristic of your life. We extend that to each and every church member here. And friends, you don't engage in, in quarreling. You don't engage in fighting and spreading these things around because you, in as much as you have surrendered your life to Christ, in as much as you have asked him to come in and be Lord of your life, you're his servant, you're his slave. And when you're quarreling, when you're bickering, when you're fighting and you're moving over these things, you're proving yourself to be something other than that what you proclaimed. 
You're proving yourself to be something other than that what you proclaimed. If you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, if you say that he is Lord of my life, but you are captivated and in, in, in pushing forward and advancing your preferences and you won't let it go and it's creating division in the body, then you're working to be the opposite of what you proclaimed. Then even louder than that thing which you said, your actions are proving you to be a liar. Your actions are proving you to be false. But look what instead you should be. He says, but be kind to everyone. And this is where we begin to pick up this idea that he's bringing back this elder language from 1 Timothy 3. He says, but be kind to everyone. Be able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Whew, that's not fun. How do we endure evil? Patiently. That's hard. And this is how we respond. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now I gotta be honest. This is not something I excel at. And this is something I really struggle with. If you and I have a difference of opinion and, and you are just spilling venom all over me, I have a really, really hard time returning gentleness to you. I mainly just say that in case Kelly decides to come in so he can test me out and say, I wonder how gentle Matt is. We recognize that there are things we do well and things we are working on, right? The model and the point we're heading for is that we display Christ in all things. He was beaten, he was abused, he was mocked, but he did not return it with hatred. Do you see that model that he lays down here? Instead, he was gentle in his response towards his opponents, towards those who were heading for the taking of his own life, he was gentle. Man, Christ gives us this really difficult model to follow. But there's no blessing in not following it. That, that fleeting feeling of, of success over this word battle and how we make the person that comes in in opposition to us feel as a mental midget because we've been, to wax, been able to wax eloquent and just destroy them with our words, you better enjoy that 15 or 20 seconds of joy that that brought you because it is fleeting and you're soon going to have to confess. You're soon going to have to repent. We need to return to our opponents' gentleness. We need to return to our opponents' patience. But it's not so that they can think better of us. It's not so that when somebody comes into my office and they spill all this venom over me, and, and they go report back to somebody, and they say, well, what did, what did Matt say when you told him exactly what an idiot he is? And they say, well, he just kind of sat there with a stupid grin on his face and smiled. <laughs> Strangest thing. I'm not even sure he was awake. You see, it's not so that they go back and they have this great report over us. Look at the second part of 25. We do this, we engage in this type of behavior so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. See, the way that we engage, the way that we work, especially with people that disagree with us, is always with a view to the gospel. We always want to see them return to fellowship with God. Or we want to see them leave darkness and move into the light. We do all of these things. We put all of our behavior, all of our attitudes in submission to Christ because we hope and we pray that our interactions with somebody lead them closer to the gospel. 
So whether they lie to us, malign us, or reach over the table and slap us across the face, we return it with gentleness. We return it with prayer. And we do this because we care about the eternal destiny of their soul. We care about their salvation. We, 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 we care. We want to see them moved out of darkness into light. Now look at 26. He says that because of this behavior, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The text paints this picture that essentially this person is inebriated. They are drunk with their perspective. They're drunk with their preference. And that's all they can see. It has clouded their vision for everything else. So every time they engage in conversation with you, this is all they want to bring up. Whether it be that they like hymns over contemporary music, whether they don't like wood on the stage, they want carpet brought back in, whatever it is. If, if it's the way they dress, they want somebody that wears a three-piece suit and sweats a lot when they preach, or they really don't care about jeans. Whatever the person sets as a preference, they are drunk on that. That's the picture Paul paints of this person. They're so preoccupied with their preference that they have completely missed. The gospel has been obscured because they are intoxicated with their own point of view. I'll tell you the hard pills to swallow is to ask yourself, what thing am I pursuing more than the gospel? What thing is clouding my view of the gospel, my ability to be usable? What thing is clouding my view of the gospel and, and, and obstructing my ability to be able to be used by him? And you think, that's difficult. Look what Paul says. It says, any time that we're engaged in behavior that, is, that puts the gospel as this tangential thing, that sets the gospel aside and we advance something else, our opinion or our preference or our, our, our desire that we say is so innate to us. Anytime we say that I'm right and it doesn't matter, I want to do it anyway, we have been taken captive. Been caught in the snare of the devil. And you might you might say to yourself, this could never happen to me. Man, I'd never be caught in the snare of the devil. I'm always looking for this little man with, with, with red horns and a tail and a pitchfork to come running around my house. And if I see someone dressed like that, I have a number of ways I could kill them. I mean, I've got the 30 out 6, I've got the 45, don't even get me started on the Kimber Subcompact. Matt, I could really do damage to this person. I could take them out at 500 yards with, with, with wind. It's impressive the ways that I could take this person down. It's not going to be that obvious. You see, deception doesn't happen that, that, that obvious way. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 11. He's working with his church and he's trying to get them to see how they've been deceived. And in verse 14 he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. See, it's not surprising that, that some of us in this room, man, you're, you're going forward and you're pursuing righteousness. And then somewhere along the way, you found something that just kind of bothered you. Just irritated you a little bit. And it's something innocuous. It's something that, that's, that's not damaging. One Sunday, a song was saying you didn't particularly care for it. One Sunday, somebody's shirt was untucked and you didn't particularly care for it. One, one, one Wednesday, somebody cut you off in the parking lot and it just kind of jaded you a little bit. It was something just, just innocent, nothing. 
Next thing you know, you find yourself campaigning for these things. You find yourself that every time something like that comes along, and that's what you pursue. You're not pursuing the gospel. You're not pursuing glorifying God. You're pursuing that thing. You've been taken captive. You're probably even led to believe that you're pursuing righteousness in the advance of your agenda. You know, the thing that, that, that wrecks most churches, well, the thing that wrecks most churches is not working out issues, but the thing that wrecks a lot of our modern churches is a disagreement over the way that we praise and worship God. Do you not see how the devil's been masquerading as an agent of light and leading us to this understanding that, that our particular preference ought to be manifest? That because we grew up singing How Great Thou Art and we grew up that at Easter time we sang Up from the Grave He Arose, that that's the only way we can ever do it. And just as, just as like that, on the other side, there's the, the younger version that comes along and says, look, we need to advance, we need to change. If we're not changing with the times, then we are dying. And they begin to look back at the other generation and say, you were wrong and we were right and we're advancing ours and you just need to sit down and be quiet. See, really, really either side is absolutely incorrect. The gospel gives us a beautiful, beautiful picture of multi-generational, multi-ethnic worship. But we find church is that place where we split along ethnic, racial, and generational lines. That's why we have services for people that prefer one type of music over another. We have, we have churches that are centered over the one way people dress or hobbies they pursue over another. See, we, we formed and made the gospel into that thing that we want it to be for us. And the sad thing, the thing I'm afraid of, is that in pursuing those things that are tangential to the gospel, some of us have moved from becoming, from being honorable vessels to dishonorable vessels. And we need to follow the pattern given for us here in Scripture. And the promise that if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Can you imagine the way that our community would be transformed? If we would surrender, if we would live our lives as honorable vessels? Can you imagine the way our, our, our workplace and our families would be transformed if the way we approached everything was to say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, you are a master, and I am ready for every good work you set before me. So you recognize that we're in a community of lost and hurting people. And we need to be willing to be used by him. This past week, I had an opportunity, I had a number of opportunities, two I'll share with you, to share the gospel. One, I shared with a guy who had, had clearly heard the gospel a number of times before, and uh, he credited his grandmother as being the single greatest influence in his life. Never once talked about the word of God, always talked about his, his godly grandmother. And we went over and over the gospel and never made it very far. But the second woman I met with, I started talking about the gospel. And this, this is a lady that grew up in, in Quinlan. She's uh, 26 years old. She'd never once heard the gospel. She'd never once been in church. She'd never once had anybody tell her about Jesus. 
it was one of these things where we're talking and I'm asking her questions and she's, she's saying, no, I've never heard that before. And I'm thinking, where am I? We're in the buckle of the Bible belt. We're surrounded by people who don't name Jesus as Lord and apparently there are those out there who have never even heard his name. Now the decision of whether or not you're going to be a useful vessel or a vessel for nothing other than dishonorable use, it matters for the lost of our community. It matters in as much as you find yourself living in submission to Jesus. So I ask you again, will you work to the cleansing of yourself? Will you surrender your life? Will you give yourself wholly to Jesus? Because it's not just about what happens in our lives. It's about what happens in the lives of all those we encounter. And as we read here in the end, that our behavior our engagement with those who have been held captive by Satan, who have followed blindly his will, we recognize that our gentle engagement with them might lead to their repentance. Might lead to their salvation. But the flip side is, if we pursue preference, if we pursue bitter jealousy, if we pursue our own agenda, no matter how noble or high-minded we've set it in our minds, then we are working for the continuance of their lostness, then we are working in accord with Satan. Let me pray for us.